Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 25th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are some differences between the rural experience and the urban experience that seem to be commonalities, but they are, in fact, big differences. On the Adam Carolla show, they do a bit called Rich Man, Poor Man, a thing that only the rich and only the poor experience, but they experience in different ways. Two examples that he talks about, the outdoor shower. If you have an outdoor shower, you're either a rich man or a poor man. Another one, the gravel driveway. I would throw into that bag the hotel, staying in the hotel that allows pets, usually the highest end, and they, eh, what the hell, take your golden retriever with you. They're not much worse than the guy above you anyway. But the rural-urban divide is a little bit of a tweak of that. Here's something. Here's something. Like, like dickies. You know, the pants dickies in the rural setting. It means these are pants I have to wear for work in the urban setting. Well, let me read you about a dickies competitor. Like hipsters wear dickies, but Carhartt, which started out making coveralls for railroad workers in 1889, opened a boutique in Soho. The centerpiece is the Carhartt Work in Progress collection, originally workwear cuts reinterpreted and refitted, right? So that's the sort of thing where rural means something, urban means something. Give me another one, mayonnaise, right? In the rural setting, mayonnaise, maybe a little Miracle Whip. In the urban setting, oh, it's artisanal. Oh, what flavor mayonnaise is that? Mayonnaise, it's mayonnaise flavored. I'll give you another big one. You ready? Whitefish. In Montana, Whitefish is a ski town, population of 6,000. They got a national park. And next year, they'll be hosting the National Speleological Society. Yeah, the cave explorers. Where I come from, in my urban setting, Whitefish, something you schmear on a bagel, uh, you toast it, maybe a thin slice of tomato. If you slice it very thin, very delicious. Which brings us to whitefish energy. Whitefish energy is not just that special feeling that you get after you eat that bagel and then hit the slopes. Whitefish energy is a two-person, two-full-time employee firm from Montana that got a contract worth up to $300 million to restore power to the island of Puerto Rico, which is weird as the Weather Channel reports. Whitefish Energy Holdings was awarded a contract to restore power to the island by the local power authority, but no one can figure out why. Typically, through mutual aid agreements, utilities from other states send support to quickly restore power after a disaster. But by the time the American Public Power Association got on a conference call to coordinate aid, Prepub, or the Puerto Rico Electrical Power Authority, had already signed a deal with this unknown company in Montana. Well, I know something who this was at least slightly known to, the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Ryan Zinke is from Whitefish, Montana. He has known the Whitefish energy guy since before he was in politics. And Zinke's son, and I believe it was his older son, Wolfgang Zinke, so not Conrad with a K, Zinke, Wolfgang Zinke interned for Whitefish Energy 
this past summer. Senate Democrats are asking questions about what the Zinke connection is and if a two-person fund can possibly restore power to an island of four and a half million. It might be sometime before the investigation or the Whitefish contract sheds light. On the show today, I spiel about the dead, the musical dead, the overweight musical dead. But first, yesterday, the Washington Post revealed the funding source behind the Steele dossier. Trumpcast's Jacob Weisberg joins me to discuss what this means to the president and Robert Mueller's investigation into Trump's electoral dealings with the Russians. The Steele dossier, it's not just the name that I'm going to take for all my acting gigs. It is the document that was assembled by the former British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele, uh, tracing down leads about connections that Donald Trump may have had with the Russians. This was printed by BuzzFeed soon after the election, too much consternation. The uh, allegations that got the most attention were about Donald Trump in a Russian hotel room with prostitutes urinating on a bed, supposedly slept in by Barack Obama. That has not been confirmed, but there are other parts of the dossier that have been confirmed, and we're going to get into them. The latest on this is that the Washington Post broke a story answering one of the unanswered questions about the dossier. Who funded it? Originally, it was thought that Republicans were behind the funding of the dossier during the primaries, and then Christopher Steele himself was brought on during the general election uh, when a Hillary Clinton lawyer, top Hillary Clinton lawyer, Mark Elias, was involved in contracting with Steele to put together this document. How much does that revelation affect where the investigation is going to go and what we think of the quality of the information in the dossier? Joining me now is Jacob Weisberg, who is my boss and the host of TrumpCast, which is the boss of Trump Podcast. Hello, Jacob. How are you? Uh, hey, Mike. I'm here strictly in capacity as your guest. You're the <laughs> boss for the next several minutes. Follow my lead here, Jacob. So... When I saw this news, I read the story. I saw Ma- Maggie Haberman tweet pointing out that Team Clinton was essentially very sanctimonious about denying being behind the dossier. And then it quickly devolved into most of liberal Twitter saying this is nothing and most of conservative Twitter saying this totally discredits the dossier. Where do you stand? Uh, well, first, I think we should step back for a minute and thank BuzzFeed, first of all, that we can even have this conversation, right? right? Because because the, In retrospect, that so, whole hand-wringing. Yeah, yeah, then everyone came down on them like a ton of bricks. Oh, it's unproven. It's, you know, it's not it's not journalism. But the truth was this document had become incredibly relevant. It became relevant to why John McCain was attacking Trump. It was at the heart of the Comey firing. And it's just one of those things where the public has a right to know. You got to know what's in it. We've been told repeatedly... It's unproven, but unproven can mean two different things. It can mean not proven yet, or it can mean total bullshit. Yeah. And, and it I can th- also mean not provable. And it can also mean that parts of it are true. Tiny facts are wrong. We got the main point of it right, but we spelt the guy's name wrong. And they apparently spelt some guy's name wrong. Right. Yeah. But but the, but the report, the dossier had, although it was raw intelligence, and though it almost certainly contains some inaccuracies... It does paint a picture which is still congruent with the reality that we're trying to get to the bottom of, of there being a long-term Russian plan to 
control Trump. There's no other way to say it, to get leverage on him and, and blackmail him. And it was when he, Christopher Steele, who, the former British intelligence officer who was hired by the American firm, when he came across this collusion story and thought it was credible, he went to the FBI. And he, at that point, was operating as someone loyal to Western intelligence, loyal to the British government, saying, hey, you know, you American authorities need to know what I've come across here. I'm just bringing you this as evidence, not because I'm being paid by anyone. All right. To get back to your question of who paid, we still don't know the whole story, right? There still was conservative money that was involved in this oppo effort against Trump. Fusion GPS, this company started by the former Wall Street Journal reporters, seems to be a completely amoral business that does oppo research for anybody mm-hmm. who pays the bills. They took Call th- me naive. As a reporter, I, I was, I mean, I know about them, but I continue to be a little shocked that a reporter would be so amoral or a couple of reporters. What a there cr- are some. Who- what, a, what a crummy business to be in, you know. And at another point, they took this money to help discredit Bill Browder, who's been on my show several times in the Magnitsky Act, basically in support of a Russian propaganda effort, which makes this whole thing very confusing because how are they investigating the KGB and taking Russian propaganda money? But I think it just goes to the point that they don't have any particular loyalties one way or the other. And I think what matters is... I mean, obviously, colors your view of Hillary Clinton was paying for this this research. It's not irrelevant. However, it doesn't go to the heart of the matter, which is what's true, what's not true. Is this report for real? I still think Christopher Steele, as far as we can possibly understand what was going on, was a sincere guy doing a real investigation and sharing with people who hired him and then with the FBI what he found out. So what Trump will say, and he's in, in generally trying to use this revelation that it was paid for by the DNC and Clinton. And by the way, people have said, well, we knew the Democrats paid for it all along. We knew someone who was reported as a Democratic donor paid for it. We did not know that it was so closely tied to Hillary Clinton. And I started a question, then I said, first of all, but let's just talk about that for a second. I don't know if it was shocking, but it was a little bit surprising to me and also a little bit disappointing. But what if you were in Hillary Clinton's shoes and you would say heard some of these rumors and knew, you know, for example, that Donald Trump's son had said that his investors were all Russian. He was making this effort to mend fences with Putin. He was more pro-Putin than any Republican candidate, than anybody in American politics had ever been. And in an ideal world, Donald Trump would have gone and turned himself into the authorities. But that's not going to happen. You want to get to the bottom of it. Just step back a minute. Why is what's wrong with hiring an investigator to try to find out what happened? Okay. You know what? You're right. We're not naive here. So here's what Trump's going to say. And he has just generally criticized it. He's going to say something like, what is so different between one of the candidates in a presidential election hiring a foreigner to put together damaging information on the other candidate versus what my son Don Jr. is being accused of, which is meeting with a foreigner who offered to supply damaging information to the other candidate. By the letter of the law, it doesn't seem that Hillary Clinton broke the law. I was looking at some of the language, and it seems to me that if there was an illegality in the Donald Trump meeting, sorry, in the Donald Trump Jr. meeting, it was accepting. In other words, he didn't pay for the information. He either accepted or was in the position to accept any material from a foreign source affecting a federal election. 
Uh, so th- maybe that's the difference that the uh, Clinton team paid for it and that the Trump team was seeking to accept it for free. So again, I'll go back to the question. When Donald Trump makes that point, what's the huge difference? What's the answer? Conspiring with an enemy power. But they're not an enemy power. I mean, they're not. We, we're not at war with them, but they're right. Russia's an enemy power. Russia, but it's not officially designated as such. That would be a violation of the law. Well, but just they're in our they're our enemy. I yeah. mean, they acted as our enemy in this election. They're trying to subvert our election. They they they're spreading propaganda and fraudulent news on social media because they want to screw up our country. And use whatever term you want. Strong antagonist. They're our enemy. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be doing business with them at all about anything around an American election. And if you know that they have any, that they are making any subterranean effort to influence the election, you have a legal and moral responsibility to go to the FBI authorities with them. Just based on what we know and that meeting in Trump Tower, Trump and his family and his top campaign people behaved abominably. Now, separate from that, Oppo research, as they call it, is a kind of sleazy part of political campaigning. And more often, you know, you're looking for damaging personal information. Somebody has a drinking problem. Somebody made a pass at somebody. Somebody's having an affair. And a lot of the uh, methods used to get that information are are, uh, morally compromised in all sorts of ways. It's dirty. I mean, the less less, uh, people have to do with it in general, the better. But it's in a different category altogether from allegations of collusion with a hostile power. Hostile power. Is that better than enemy? Can we say hostile? Yeah. No, I think just legally that if there, if this was a sanctioned and classified enemy of the United States, there'd be different legal consequences. So let me read from, uh, from the law at stake. No person shall knowingly solicit or accept from a foreign national any contribution to a campaign of an item of value. I guess that's what Donald Trump will say is uh, similar to the meeting that his son had and contracting with Steele. And I think that it's probably just an asterisk that Steele was or is British. I mean, the analogy for me would be, what, you can't hire a Brit to cut a campaign ad? You know, yeah, that's totally campaign. different. Well, you could, the, the, the Brit can't contribute to the American candidate, but the Brit can be hired by an American campaign to work yeah. on the campaign. That's not that, that's not against law. So as I look at the uh, the smokescreens that Trump has put up and in some cases, the witch hunts that he's set off consistently, they're 180 degrees from the truth. When he says Obama or the FBI wiretapped me in Trump Tower, or when he says, or when the Republicans in the House launch an investigation into the Clinton Foundation and uranium mines. One is a lie. One is irrelevant. So often you have examples of, you know, Trump's arguments that just don't hold any water at all. When Trump says Hillary was behind this document, much of which hasn't been proven, that's being used against me, I think it holds more water than some of his past hissy fits. It's a point worth knowing. It's a valid point. However, Trump's whole behavior in relation to the dossier, I mean, it's interesting. How does Trump behave when he's innocent and how does he behave when he's guilty? Because Trump re- has read this dossier, presumably, yeah. and knows whether anything's true in it. Right. And he's trying to act like someone who is outraged because nothing in it is true. Right. Right. And part of what he's doing is he's bringing it up. And you kind of think intuitively, well, if he was guilty, he wouldn't be bringing it up. He would want the topic to go away. 
However, I think if you look at certain past episodes, I mean, look, for example, at the Trump University scandal, right, in which I think Trump was guilty, certainly paid, 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 paid a $25 five. Yeah. million dollar settlement, which was for him, you know, a huge amount of money to actually pay, never pay, would never pay anything in settlements. He, his behavior was very similar. His level of outrage and indignance over how abused and mistreated he was was exactly the same. And then when it came time, he quietly settled and, and dropped the topic. And this is, I think, the most important point, that the reason the dossier seems so important is that what we know of the Mueller investigation, it's who we know, I think we know a lot of who he's talked to, and we know that this dossier has informed his investigation. But I think... I think the provenance of the dossier, facts around the dossier, is essentially like debating the iceberg, and it's likely that he has access to the glacier. This is just the part that we see. And even if some of the dossier never gets proved, that might not tell us much about the Mueller investigation. There's a lot that's not in the dossier, the Trump Tower meeting, the some of, some of what we now know about Manafort. I mean, there are a lot of different threads, and that's part of what is confusing and frustrating about the Russian investigation. I mean, first of all, we don't know what Mueller's got. I don't think Mueller's leaking at all. So we're just putting together scraps based on what other people are guessing or, or saying based on interviews that he might, might have done. But they're different. they're different threads, any of which could be true possibly none of which could ultimately be borne out, or all of them could be true in different ways. Is it Flynn? Is it Carter Page? Is it Manafort? Is it it the Trump Tower meeting and the Trump family? Which Russians, which meetings were really the important one? That's what we haven't got a good answer. We're, We're investigating a lot of things in parallel. I want a full investigation. I want to know what happened, and I want to act correctly about what happened. That said, I'd rather see Trump lose a reelection than get, you know, tossed out of office because of this. Uh, well, I don't know if I agree with you. If there is powerful evidence that his campaign colluded with the Russians, that is ultimately an impeachable offense. And it's beyond outrageous. You have to draw the line at a hostile powers effort to undermine our democracy, even if we might have undermined a few democracies ourselves in the past. It's intolerable. And if he did it, I think he should be thrown out. Jacob Weisberg, host of Trumpcast. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. We are part of that group. We are of that group. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. News today of the death of New Orleans rhythm and blues legend Fats Domino prompted the very sentiment that brought Fats Domino to number one for 10 weeks in 1955. Fats Domino was a massive chart-topping success. He had almost 40 songs that hit the top 40, and he was extremely influential. John Lennon said, Ain't That a Shame was the first rock and roll song I ever learned. My mother taught it to me on the banjo before I learned it on the guitar. Fats Domino was New Orleans royalty. And in fact, Elvis Presley, speaking of royalty, once said of Fats Domino, that's the real king of rock and roll. At 89, Fats Domino was a legend and also the oldest person I've ever heard of nicknamed Fats. Seriously. Domino, and that was his real last name, Antoine was his first name, was named in the tradition of piano players named Fats. There was Fats Waller, dead at 39. Fats Pichon, dead at 60. 
The Trumpeter, Fats Navarone, dead at 23. U.S. Congressman Robert Ashton Fats Everett, dead at 53. Baseball player, Fatty or Fats Fothergill. Fothergill's Wikipedia page has four subsections under baseball. They are minor leagues, Detroit Tigers, Chicago and Boston, and as its own section, girth. Fats Fothergill once beat Babe Ruth in a drinking contest. None of those facts augur well for longevity, and indeed Fats Fothergill was dead at the age of 40. Even those with names that are synonyms of fat do not fare well. I won't cite Biggie Smalls, he died via gunfire, but fellow rapper Heavy D died at the age of 44, deep vein thrombosis, after a long flight, can be exacerbated by obesity. Of the rappers, the Fat Boys, two are alive, now one lost over 100 pounds, but Buff Love, the human beatbox, dead at the age of 28, and Fats Domino lived to be 89. Amazing. And now I need to spend a special word on Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker is still doing live shows at age 76, so the question arises, what explains Chubby Checker's bucking of the mortality tables? It's simply this. Chubby Checker wasn't ever chubby. Chubby Checker was named after Fats Domino. He was dubbed Chubby Checker in a marketing ploy dreamed up by the wife of Dick Clark. And Dick Clark, of course, went on to put Chubby Checker on American Bandstand, singing to the twist. Fats. Chubby, Domino, Checker, get it? Yeah, yeah. In a story about how Fats Domino was the inspiration for the name Chubby Checker, the Philadelphia Inquirer helpfully wrote, the joke, of course, being that Checkers and Fats names are essentially the same. Chubby means fat, and like Domino's, Checkers is a tabletop game. Thank you, Philadelphia Inquirer. Still, that does not explain why the careers of other recording artists, Portly Yahtzee, Tubby Boggle, and of course the great Zaftig Stratego never took off. It's sad. America needed to know Zaftig Stratego. It's a hard game out there. As for Fats Domino, he's in the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was inducted by Billy Joel, who credited the Boogie Woogie Great with being an inspiration. And I want to thank the man who proved that the piano is a rock and roll instrument, Fats Domino. But let us give the final word to the man himself who left behind a good song and a pretty fair eulogy. I live my life to please myself And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who played in a hardcore band named Wolfgang Zinke. Gist producer Mary Wilson plays in a Riot Girl inflected skiffle band named after the Treasury Secretary's unborn child, Maximo Mnuchin. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, dabbles on the weekends with an experimental dubstep collective, the Electric Eric Lighthizer Orchestra Project. The Gist. I see your steel dossier. I raise it one titanium attache. Umpru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>